You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Heward. Good morning, everyone. This is Daniel Heward. I am your host for Build for Impact. And today, and I'm really honored and happy to have Blake Jackson as our guest today. Blake is a architect, 18 plus years experience. He's a U.S. Northeast sustainability design leader with Stantec based in Boston. He works at the Nexus of Sustainability, Wellness, and Resiliency, serving as a company-wide resource for projects seeking third-party certifications. Got a master's in sustainable environmental design and actually did school in the UK as well. Blake's an author, speaker, educator, and all-around awesome guy who is also well faculty, lead faculty, and a FitWell ambassador and a CPHC. Blake, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm exhausted from that mouthful. I need to really, really tone, hone that in. Um, but yeah, we've been we've been busy over the course of a number of years for sure. Yeah, I, I tried to do it all in one breath, and I struggled. It's a mess. Uh, just the U.S. Northeast Sustainability Lead is is a challenge, uh, and and kind of like what that means is basically supporting multiple offices as far east as London, as far west as Chicago, as far north as Toronto and south as DC and sort of everything within that diamond. Um, it's been real. <laughs> Drinking from the fire hose, working at the international, uh, multinational conglomerate for four years, it, it'll do that to you. And, and such titles come with, come with the, uh, the territory. You know, they have the right person for the responsibilities at hand. And so I'm, I'm saying that. That's what I keep telling them. <laughs> Uh, so let's jump straight into Build for Impact, and we both serve on the LAC, um, the Lead Advisory Committee with U.S. Green Building Council. So that means that we've had a really great relationship within Lead, within USGBC, contributing uh, in order to get there. We help guide the path of, for the uh, for the future of Lead collaboratively, and. Uh, with that set up, I'm going to go back to sustainability and, and kick us off in our discussion and in uh, your thoughts on, on sustainability as, as pillar number one. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a big one. I mean, that's almost a philosophical question, right? As to, you know, why, why should we do this? I, if, if I'm to answer that, I have to take it kind of back to my, my roots in, in terms of, uh, thinking about sustainability, it wasn't something that I was educated in as an architect, which I'm a little disappointed in, and I'm trying to remedy that in the teaching and mentoring that I'm doing right now at the level that I'm doing at the various universities I'm involved with, including my alma maters as well. But um, it wasn't something that was being taught in architecture school, quite the opposite. I mean, I went to a great school. Uh, was Southern Polytechnic State University. That's where I got my penchant for mouthful titles. And it has been absorbed into Kennesaw State University. It's still, the, as far as I'm concerned, the number one architecture program in the state of Georgia. It's the only uh, five-year accredited uh, program, professional program of architecture in the state of Georgia. So I don't, I don't uh, question the education that I got, but sustainability was always treated as an additional layer. And uh, it wasn't even a consideration uh, in terms of what we were doing in our projects, energy was always the consequence of the decisions that the architects made as opposed to something that we controlled. And I think that that's bogus. And I've been trying to change that systematically for a number of years. So um, it wasn't until 
um, 2006 when I became a lead AP to bring it back to lead as sort of a catalyst. And at that time, it was really beginning to skyrocket in terms of its market share uptake and its relevancy and, and being something new and exciting uh, that I would like to try to help it maintain that. It's, it's since perhaps maybe lost a little bit of that sheen. But, um, you know, for me, it, it reintroduced common sense into buildings which I thought was fantastic. Instead of buildings being the results of theories, which had been sort of put into my brain in magazines and architecture school, uh, it became about these universal principles of fresh air and sunlight and views and, and uh, indoor environmental quality and sustainable sourcing and responsible site management, um, which I just found extremely eye-opening uh, and, and, and sort of revelatory. Uh, in 2006, and that set me on the trajectory to become who I became today. So, you know, to get back to sustainability, I often joke with my students at the BAC because they're always like hitting their heads and saying, but this is just common sense. And I'm like, I know. Antonio Gaudi, uh, uh, Hadrian, who gets uh, uh, credit for the Pantheon, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, they were being sustainable. They just weren't calling it sustainability. So in a way, it is rediscovering common sense uh, as modern contemporary uh, practitioners and individuals and as a, as a civilization as a whole. Yeah, and I'm glad you touched down on that because, you know, I had the honor, I did my undergrad and graduate at SUNY in Buffalo, um, where I also did uh, my, my MUP. And, you know, I had really two great mentors sort of decompartmentalize that whole idea. This is, you know, you did architecture and this, this other stuff was over here. Uh, Dennis and Draco, whose work is actually in the architectural reference guide, you know, some of the graphic stuff, and, and Gary Day, and, and both those guys were really good at instilling, you know, tectonics, you could actually do things with your hands, as well as a system. So Dennis uh, had Go Sun was his license plate. So he was, you know, a solar and, you know, effective design guy. And, and they both contributed early on in the, in the rough framework. In 2001, we looked at the original LEED framework uh, while we were students, you know, doing our graduate stuff. So it was really fun to have guys who were that concerned about having your space be comfortable um, as well as sort of appropriate to, to program and function. Uh, you know, they, they looked at wanting to make sure that you experience comfort as well. So that, that was a really good sort of formal introduction, formal slash informal introduction to sustainability for me. Um, and that was really cool. And so some of the stuff that you just touched down on leads us to the, to the next pillar in resiliency. And, and I guess it's, it's become a buzzword. And, you know, I keep giving Canada credit because now uh, in Canada, when you do a, a new project, you actually have to do uh, a respective statement, letting you know the regulatory entity know, letting the, everybody know that you're anticipating that the project you're doing has a minimum lifespan of 75 years, and what measures have you included in there to be responsible and resilient? Uh, I, I think it's a move forward. So, just kind of setting it up and teeing it up with that one. I know that you're a huge advocate for it. Your thoughts on resiliency, Blake? I mean, to our own detriment that we ignore uh, the signs, right? I mean, all of human history has been about this in, in one way or another. And it's funny, one of my friends and I, we, we, we have a resiliency circle that we send snide remarks back and forth to each other because we butt our heads against uh, brick walls sometimes with uh, 
projects not doing enough uh, in, in our in our humble opinions and and understanding that projects must juggle a lot of things so try not to be judgmental but uh you know, we, I was joking with him the other day and said, oh, have you seen Babylon lately? I mean, it's kind of a dump, but at one point it was really nice, right? It's because they ignored resiliency and, and Babylon and other, other cities that of, uh, of fame and or infamy uh, have and will continue to do the same. And it seems to be sort of part of our human nature because we ignore problems until they become so big that they be, they be uh, bequeath us to other problems, so to speak. So we knew that it was dangerous um, to have the lower ninth ward behind a levee that wasn't getting proper maintenance and it needed to fail and fail big in order to get the attention and, and did it even spark the necessity or the, uh, the call to action or the sense of urgency around addressing it or did we just continue to bandage it? Right? And so sometimes it feels like we're in the, uh, the business of bandaging. Um, and, and part of that is that, uh, we like to handle things through the parcel by parcel method or brick by brick. So a lot of the resiliency work that we're involved in in the city of Boston, other cities that have it as a requirement, uh, it is the municipality that is, uh, I, I, I am encouraged. I always come with sort of by, uh, 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 diametrically opposed opposites. I'm always discouraged and encouraged by something. So I'll start with the discouraging moment. I'll end with the encouraging moment. So the discouraging is that we're doing it piece by piece, as opposed to um, thinking big, thinking beyond the scale of the immediacy, thinking at the scale of the problem, which is for most coastal cities, sea level rise, and um, which will affect riverine and lake cities and even inland cities as well. So it's, it's not just the coast that are in trouble, it's civilization that is at stake here, right? I don't, I don't mean to make that sound more dire than it is, but it couldn't be more true. Uh, but anyhow, um, we've lost our, um, We've lost our ability to think at that scale um, in this continent, I feel, sometimes. Um, where is the interstate project of the 21st century? And think about what that took to employ over the series of just a couple of decades. And uh, the level of uh, maneuvering and the level of force that it took to, to put that down. Now, I'm not saying that it didn't have its unintended consequences, but the ability to think large connected a continent. Uh, the ability to think large created the Panama Canal. Um, the ability to think large at the more regional scale of Boston, for example, was to undergo the big dig. And we've lost our appetite for these projects because they run over, they run late, they run over in budget and in time, and they tend to under-deliver. Um, and that's just a reality of these types of projects, but we, we need to think big in order to save our cities, I believe. I, I believe that we need harbor walls to protect New York to protect Boston, for example. I don't think we're gonna get there on the parcel by parcel basis simply because that relies on everybody playing. And there are going to be parcels that are triggered and there's gonna be parcels that are not triggered by development between now and 20, 30, 50, 70. So I think that we need to think big and think nationally in order to solve this challenge um, because it is, it is very, very much a challenge. Um, but what I am encouraged by is the fact that cities are taking a step in the direction to leverage ordinances like Article 37 in Boston, for example, in order to uh, start utilizing the permitting. Um, the, this, the, one, the one vantage point that cities have that developers don't is that the city understands what all the developers are proposing at a given time. 
And so what they can do is they can leverage the development that is on the table in order to get parcels to start connecting to each other to say, okay, if we want a unified waterfront along East Boston, for example, which is a great example, um, how they leverage new development to buy protection uphill for the neighborhood that's exposed is to say that all these parcels are gonna be part of a plan. They're gonna set a datum and they're gonna have a mixture of gray and green infrastructure and they're required to manage stormwater and they're required to do these X, Y, and Z minimum resiliency measures. And so I'm encouraged that cities are starting to think at the scale of the city um, of how to afford the protection and how to do it over time because it is expensive to do it all at once. So it needs to be phased. But so I'm, I'm equally discouraged and encouraged by what I'm seeing in various cities across the, the uh, North America and the globe relative to resilience, but we have a lot of work to do. And resiliency, it, it lacks, the, it lacks the, the sexiness of sustainability, right? If we, if we were to call it that, if that's even the right word to use. Um, because it is affording yourself the protection that you just need in order to maintain your own livability and the livability of others in and around. Blake, I really like the way you frame that in, in you know, the fact that uh, it, without getting political, it's really a bigger problem than one parcel. So the, the need to actually have an action that's inclusive uh, is important on it. And, you know, I look at some some of the, the stuff that I've done on resiliency for for uh, small island states in the Caribbean and, and really, you know, stuff is pitiful for them. Um, as a result of climate change, and, and you know, we know climate change is real. We know it's here. We know it's going to continue to affect us. Um, the whole idea about being prepared and working in alignment with nature seems to be missed on many. And I really like the way you connected that to what, what needs to be done. We got to be cognizant. And, um, it, you know, you shared the challenge that it's not at the top of anybody's minds as something that's, you know, woohoo, let's get excited about resiliency because it, it's just not there. And I guess that's, you know, really a good setup for us to move into the, the next pillar in transparency. And transparency really is about, from, from my perspective, uh, so many things, uh, you know, we're talking equity, we're talking uh, attitude, we're talking credibility, we're talking material transparency, uh, being honest and sharing and, and forthright um, are all things that I include in transparency. You know, uh, please share with us your thoughts on it. In, in, you know, it can be one thing that you see as paramount or it can be an interrelated uh, group of things. Uh, it's a, it's a big, it's another, another big one. Um, I, I like that we're attacking this from a philosophical standpoint at the beginning of the conversation. So I think, uh, you know, for, for transparency for me kind of began in my practice in terms of advocating for materials transparency and really fundamentally trying to challenge manufacturers to track down their supply chains. And that's been an ongoing battle for at least eight years, uh, perhaps longer, but I'm encouraged by what I've seen uh, with manufacturers uh, being able to track this information down, but also utilizing the bigger component of transparency, which is the being transparent about the things that you do as a company or as a product line or as individuals, which is, which is I think, a bigger shift away from um, 
I think it's a, I think it's a gentler way of competing. So for example, um, architects used to, if, if they had a good idea, they would, they would design kind of like this and they wouldn't share their ideas. And I think it's really encouraging now that we have the AIA publishing a couple of studies back in 2017, I believe it was one of them that comes to mind is uh, lessons learned from the leading edge, um, where it was a series of firms that were continuing to meet the AIA 2030 commitment. And instead of them just relying on that to be their business generator, they shared it with the other members to say organizationally, Here's how you can structure your practice in order to do the same things that we've done. Here's the strategies that work. Here's the things that don't work. And um, there was also uh, another study at the same time published by the AIA, which was talking about the winners of the AIA Coat Top 10 award every year are the same firms. And part of it's because they have great clients, but why do they have great clients? Well, they have great clients because the clients go to them with great projects because they know they can deliver on innovation and promises. And so, Again, instead of them hiding behind that and, and, and leveraging that for their own selfish best interests, and I think that's one of the great things about the green community in general is that we're so open and that we help each other out and we don't look at each other in firms as competitors. We look at people that are generally trying to do the right thing. I've never been in an interview scenario where somebody came and said, okay, sustainability guy, you're the, uh, you're the one that's going to make or break this, right? So we don't have to think about that that way and the way that perhaps our, our C-suite does or our owners do. Um, and it enables us to work in ways that are much more fluid because like I can network with 50 peers and if each one of, uh, each one of us is unique in our own way of thinking and work we're doing. And we all have one unique thing that we do that makes us special to our firms and a value to society as a whole. And if we can share those ideas, I don't have to spend my time coming up with 50 good ideas. I can sort through the 50 good ideas and find the ones that I can employ tomorrow. And that seems to be the way that our community works. And I think that, you know, transparency is a, is a big component of it. And we're, we tend to be at the leading edge of that relative to uh, our practices just because that's that's uh, the sustainability group is the clearinghouse for all the new and you know and exciting things at least I'm excited about it uh, items like corporate social responsibility ESG these are all transparency right in a, in a manner of speaking and so we become the voice for our firms and we become the people that are sharing the ideas and it seems to be that we we are very inclusive about that and I'm in I'm encouraged by that because um there's a lot we can do when we start sharing those ideas and we can evolve our profession and, and uh, move beyond uh, greenhouse gas emissions and other and, and chemicals of concern. Yeah. And it, also toxic environments too. <laughs> Not yeah. saying that our industry is proliferating with them, but just to say that, you know, that's another element that is becoming much more of a concern moving into the middle of this century is, is equity and inclusion and, 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 you know, how are we working towards that? And transparency is a component of that because we need to be able to reflect on our practice and our, our products and, and ensure that we're doing good in the world, just not doing good to ourselves. I, I think one of the great things that you shared was that, you know, within the green world in, in our communities, we've identified, you know, sort of a need for a response. And if it didn't exist, we started something to get it there. And, and we did that back when we were trying to do LEED 2012 around material transparency and gaining greater amount of it. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen great success. Now we have manufacturers 
that, that are keynote speakers on, on stuff about product transparency. You know, we're starting to see more engagement and involvement in the ethical treatment of people as well. And in fact, a year ago at New York Build, you know, I uh, chaired the Sustainability Summit, but I also uh, had a, a session on uh, the Modern Slavery Transparency Declaration in basically taking a look at what we need to do to be ethically responsible in the supply chain. And, and try and stop that practice that has been going on for so long, taking advantage of others. And really, it's a deep dive into transparency in, in a way that maybe didn't exist before or there wasn't enough focus on it. So I, I've got to give both you and I pats on the backs uh, as, as being those people who didn't you know, sh shrug or turn away from those responsibilities of engaging in, in making sure that we took an ethical, credible response around uh, a transparency, be it in, in any of those, those matters, and in, in initiated the move to, to see it move forward. Uh, somebody else can be the champion of it. We're just an active participant in it. Um, in, yeah, we tend to be a catalyst. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the beauty about having an, an architectural background is it gives you the it gives you enough interdisciplinary uh, overconfidence, <laughs> in parentheses, overconfidence, uh, to be able to scratch the surface of things that you have no business being in. But because you're trained to be a generalist, you feel like you can solve the problem and your naivety is your best friend, I think, because it gets you into these things and it becomes part of your lexicon. And then you, like you said, we're not necessarily doing this work. And this, this was one of the things that I was a bit baffled by in 2012 when I started getting into the, the soup and the nuts, so to speak, of what became the MR section in lead V4. Because I remember thinking, oh dear, we're going to have to do this work and, and who's going to pay for this and how, is, how much time is this going to take? But then when I realized like, oh, we're just leveraging our power, our purchasing power and our specifications power in order to encourage manufacturers who are industrial engineers at heart to do this work. We're just advocating for them to do the work and then by them doing it, they'll automatically use and leverage that to improve their supply chains. Once I realized the advocacy role, then I felt comfortable taking a, a, a catalyzing approach within this area. And now, you know, just last week, we had manufacturers reaching out to say, hey, we've got an EPD, an HPD, or, or this one's we're cradle to cradle. And you know, we're thinking about workplace uh, improvements for the community where we manufacture our products. And it's, you know, that didn't, that wasn't happening eight, nine years ago when we were just asking them to start the process. And so it's a, it's a long and drawn out process, but um, you know, with, that we can be the catalyzers of because we do draw and we would create two dimensional construction documentation drawings and, and written specifications. And those things are, are, that's money, it's power. And that's what makes things actually happen and it takes a while but um you know they're starting to get there yeah and moving on from from what we just shared i think that we've always been concerned about comfort and well-being in, in all of a sudden you know like the other pillars it's come to the forefront and and we've got a necessary response and action you and i are both members of well faculty and, and i remember you know dialoguing about the need to get this information out in a more wide stance in 2014 with uh, with Dr. Whitney Austin Gray 
who is, you know, one of our senior VPs at uh, the International Well Building Institute. You know, so obviously I've got a deep belief in, in wellness. Your, your thoughts in that regard? I mean, it's sort of fundamental to sustainability, right? And I think it's, I think it's interesting that it took us 30 years of talking about reducing to like focus less on the reductions and the pain and the guilt <laughs> and more on the, the people, right? I mean, like, well, bringing up Whitney, right? She's a, she's a fantastic advocate for this. And I've been fortunate enough to have known her for a number of years uh, before she joined IWBI. Uh, we did some, we overlapped together on some work with the Green Guide for Healthcare, which eventually became influential and in lead for healthcare. And uh, so she's been doing this work for a long time. And, you know, I, I think that the moniker well is for, for people is, is really powerful. And, and it's, it's touching in a way that it's, it's, it's tangible in a way that sustainability has yet to, to do. And, you know, I challenge people beyond the lead plaque and the, the, the bicycle racks and the showers. Like, what is it about your building that makes it sustainable? It's difficult to look and to differentiate uh, lighting power density reduction over the course of uh, an open office, right? It's difficult to scratch the paint and decipher if there's any uh, chemicals of concern in it or not, or VOCs for that matter. But with the wellness component, it's very tangible. It's all about the, the food. It's about the the ergonomic workspace, it's about sit-stand desk, operable windows, things that were, and, and some of these things are optional within well as well. That should be a drinking game, by the way. But um, how many times can we say well in the well presentation? But uh, anyways, it, it, it's also, it's been voluntary too long in the sustainability systems, yet it's fundamental about health. And if you, you know, you go back all the way to Vitruvius, I read I, one of my COVID hobbies was rereading Vitruvius. I, I said, I'm going to, with a mature brain, not a 19 year old's brain, I'm going to read this book. And it was shocking to me because the whole time he was just talking about sustainability. And I thought this is great because it was just fundamental to what architects and built environment professionals did for so long. And then in the 20th century, we just forgot all about it. And again, it's about that rediscovering of common sense. But I mean, the Romans, you know, they, they would not lay down a city. I thought it was really interesting because they have this octagonal view of the world and the winds are sort of described in the same way that we would describe astrological signs in Vitruvius. And so certain winds were good for certain times of the year and certain winds needed to be avoided. And so the layout of the Cardo and the Decumanus and the Roman gridded plan was all predicated upon the relationship of the, the winds and the ability to properly ventilate healthily a space and, and not just individual spaces, but the urban form in general. And I just thought that that was, that was awesome. <laughs> and it needs to be a, a well community's credit uh, to go back and actually use these names, you know, and, and, uh, and to, to, to dig back into history because the, our ancestors knew this stuff. They had no other choice. If they designed to help an unhealthy city, it would vanish. It would become Babylon. I, I love the way you stitch that back together because, you know, we've, we've got an example from several thousand years ago that looks at resilience. It looks at wellness. It, you know, it looks at societal good. Um, we can still do it. You know, we, we just have to be more cognizant in, I, as I always, you know, get scolded for, um, reduce the first cost tendencies. You know, we, we share that with our clients uh, to the point where once they get it, they get it. And it's so much easier to move forward 
with really good projects after that point in time. You know, we used to struggle to try and get daylighting in a, in a building. You know, I remember seeing pictures of these horrid and, and being in these horrible school classrooms that had one little, you know, the, the transom window, window over the door was the only window you had in the room. Right. My God, how horrible can it be for people, right? I taught in one of those classrooms once, and it was very ironic to be teaching about daylight and views in a building with uh, all cinder blocks painted with lead paint, probably. Oh, do you skylight even? So, yeah. Understood. We do the same thing at conferences, too. We go to conferences and talk about biophilic design, and we're in like these hermetic views <laughs> on end, and you know. <laughs> yeah. And I had a previous a build for impact talk in, and I brought on a, a native educator. Um, and you know, it was so funny. It basically throws a snowball at biophilia because everything they do has a connection to nature. So you're not trying to seek an ability to connect with nature. You use nature to inform what you're doing. Um, so, you know, obviously I'm a supporter of biophilia, but on the, on the flip side, when you have somebody who's looking at uh, doing it in a manner where you're, you know, you're using culture and the wisdom of your elders uh, and experience to try and inform your ability to continue to make good decisions that are helpful for people with respect to nature, all of a sudden, you know, you can breathe a sigh because you're at ease that, you know, you're, you're not worried about appeasing a committee. You're, you know, you're fulfilling a higher goal. Uh, so it, shows you, it shows you how far we've moved though, right. As a, as a profession. And that's, that's a, it, it happens so gradually that we forget um, from whence we came. Right. I mean, because because I used to wonder I was in Amsterdam once and I was walking around and I had just learned about the CM conference. And hopefully I said that right. C.I.A.M. It was the 1920s. Le Corbusier and all of his cronies got together and decided how the 21st century was going to be built. And lo and behold, it became true. And um, I was just thinking to myself uh, how quaint the uh, the the little uh, jagged buildings that were sitting on the swamp that were, you know, about to fall over, but not quite, uh, you know, Siam was responding to that. How do you put a factory in the middle of Amsterdam? You can't without destroying it. And how do you build modern infrastructure like rails and, and all those? Things? So our ideas come from these responses to the thing that other people who grew up with those realities find very quaint. So I go to Amsterdam for my vacation. Corbu was coming over here for his, and and uh, he he saw the potential in an industrial society, and we saw we see the potential in moving backwards towards something a little bit more handmade and authentic and 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 specific to a place, right? But as a as an industry, to to bring it full circle back to this notion that it's ingrained in the culture and there is no uh, separate for separation from nature. There is just the nature within, which is the construct of which we're responding to our needs, and we're a part of nature. We've gotten really far away from that. Once we created HVAC systems that removed the need for the building to respond to the ability to ventilate itself naturally, we could go vertically, we could go deep. And once we, you know, filled it full of artificial light, we could go even deeper and bigger and less windows if we needed to. And those those movements have resulted in various different architectures that are uh, exacerbating 
the challenges of runaway greenhouse gas emissions. And, and, you know, it's our duty to try to reverse that. And luckily these, this is going to happen within a time frame that those 21st century buildings have an opportunity to be updated, both systems and in architectural, that we can perhaps with latest and greatest technology and human ingenuity come up with something that doesn't make the 22nd century a hell on earth. Um, which, which, which is what keeps us all, I think, probably motivated to get up and go practice every single day. But we've got our work cut out for us between now and 2030, but in particular between 2050. I think we're going to be doing a lot of retrofits of existing buildings. Yeah, and you know, I, I think the power of what we're doing in helping continue to move the lead rating systems forward, and uh, in, 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 you know, I'll add to that, trying to be respectful, respectful regional responsive, uh, is key because, you know, at any point in time, in, 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 I'm just regurgitating a fact that we know, 97.5% of the building stock is an existing building. Mm-hmm. And, and when we say, okay, let's imagine it the last, what, 10 years, we've, we've had good and efficient buildings. Well, we know that's not truly the case because many of those are first cost. But even if we said 25% of buildings were you know, we didn't need to do anything to, and, and this is just a hypothetical. That means that the majority of the building stock, fully 75% needs our engagement and involvement in, in trying to improve those spaces and places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the work that we do is crucial on, on many fronts. And, and, you know, ergo my, my uh, uh, pillars, right? Uh, the work that we do, contributes to sustainability, contributes to resiliency, uh, contributes to transparency in a big way, um, you know, because we just talked about how you walk into an existing building and it, it could be detrimental to you. And then wellness um, is key. And, and I'm just thinking of, I was just commissioning a, a little project last week um, in, in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I took one of these sensors that does all the stuff, you know, temperature, humidity, uh, VOC, CO2, all that stuff. And, and it's something that I'm adding to what I do when I do these things. And, and what it is is a, a set of uh, parameters for within the, the, the um, commissioning report, because we don't commission for these things, but I think it's vital for us to share this as a transparency mechanism, as a wellness mechanism. Um, oh, yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to do it, you know? You should. I mean, it, it, it's almost like it's almost like you've planted a bug in the building, right? And you're waiting for the owner to want the information that the bug can provide, and then voila, it's been there the whole time, and here's the report. Going back to Dr. Gray, one of the interesting things that we did when we were working on the Green Guide for Healthcare is, is uh, we, we did an international pilot program on 65 healthcare facilities in North America and in the Middle East. We were utilizing the version 2.2 operations pilot, which looked at design, construction, and operational measures for healthcare facilities specifically. And the one thing that I learned from that, and I was early in my career as a dedicated sustainability professional, but from 2010 to 2012, we surveyed these 65 healthcare facilities. We gathered both quantitative and qualitative feedback on their performance for energy, water, site, transportation, you name it. 
And the one thing that they all had in common was if they monitored it, they could make a positive impact. And if they didn't monitor it, they were completely lost on where to invest capital spending and where to put their limited resources uh, to be able to meet goals. And there is something to be said about being able to, uh, you know, impact what you what you measure. I forget the exact uh, the exact uh, uh, phrase for that, but everyone in the sustainability field knows what I'm talking about. And uh, you know, it was one of those things that where they had a new facility, they would always include uh, additional monitoring for air, water, et cetera. Um, but for the existing building stock, it was really a challenge. It was very expensive to put it in while it was very cheap to do it for the new construction. So we always try to encourage our clients, no matter what the building is, to put some sensors in and some measuring protocols in just because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a $90 meter. And if you're at a meeting with 12 people and you're sitting there arguing about sub-metering uh, sub commitments and things, I mean, you'll easily burn through that 90 bucks. Uh, just arguing about it. At some point, you just need to kind of ninja it into the project and then just hope nobody notices or VEs it out. And even then, who's focusing on $90 when you're X percent over budget on the project? But it, and I know that's a gross oversimplification of submetering, but because it needs more infrastructure than just the actual meters, but getting them where they need to be after the fact is really, really challenging and nobody has the stomach for it because it's usually a different team than the one that you're being accountable for that day and that time, at least from my, my perspective at the end of the table that I sit, um, that's dealing with those measures. Uh, they're not the same entity always. Yeah, agreed. Um, so Blake, uh, I, I'm not sure how much time we've used up, but I, you know, I, I think we could go on for days uh, of <laughs> and I'd be happy to, uh, but I think we want to, you know, maybe uh, get a panel discussion for a future episode of Build for Impact. Um, huge appreciation from me and our audience uh, for coming on, on board today and dialoguing about stuff. And uh, I look forward to conscripting you in another one of these at some point soon. That'd be great. I love to, uh, I love to do this type of work and, uh, you know, the fact that it'll be recorded forever makes me have to think a little bit harder before I open my big mouth. So uh, I'll be, I'll look forward to it. I'm going to give you closing thoughts. Well, I just want to say thanks for, you know, bringing the uh, sustainability community to the podcast reality. And I think that this is a, a really interesting platform to be able to talk candidly about some of the challenges that, that we face. I think it's wonderful to have our, uh, our, community out there and to have our pillars, but it doesn't always translate so directly into the projects that we do in such a tangible way. And so I would, I would encourage others to piggyback on this opportunity to say, Hey, how do we, how do we become, you know, I see you as the Joe Rogan right now of, of the sustainable design podcast community. So like, how do we take it to that level? I mean, like I would like to serve on that panel with Mike Tyson and his tiger. So that's, that's my, those are my, those are my demands. Uh, along with my Guns N' Roses green jelly beans, just to make sure you're reading the contract. But uh, I think it would be cool to take it to that level, and we should uh, we should conscript some people. Uh, you know that that are there are a lot of Leonardo DiCaprio, for example, is very interested in health and wellness. There's no reason why we couldn't get him on here. Let's I'm let's go to work on high for you. <laughs> let's, let's go to work on that. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So really thrilled that I get to collaborate with you um, and, and thrilled that we, we got to do this. I look forward to our next discussion. 
Cool. Well, thank you very much. And to the audience as well, hopefully you enjoy. Take care. Uh, everybody, this is Daniel Heward, uh, your host for Build for Impact. Uh, and send us your questions, recommendations, and, uh, in, and responses. I look forward to another episode with you very soon. Bye-bye.